it was they were doing things that I knew were different. They're very different. They had their own styles. They, they inherited family traditions. They were taught. They've been practicing medicine, pulling out needles from the age of five years old. That kind of stuff. What I learned in Macau was I learned the syllabus of the People's Republic of China. I learned Bianjiang Lunjie. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I don't know is a great place to start. It's a great place to start because it's an invitation. It contains a potency that easily draws you forward, like water heating the call of the sea. The potency of a beginning is that you don't know the end, but you can feel a pull, a draw, something without words, but a voice that feels like, yes. All worthwhile endeavors, they start with questions. All roads of value, their signs are not obvious to all. If you've had a good education, then you've discovered that there's more than having the right answer. A good education will teach you to question. It will develop the mental tools and habits of discernment, hone your judgment, and stoke your courage. Any road worth following is notable by an accompanying feeling of, this might not work. That's when you know you're traversing territory fertile with transformative possibility. This isn't something you can think your way through, and it's more than a passing impulse of the moment. Sometimes, While you can't see the future, you can feel it. Like all water knows the sea. Like streams and rivers are connected in their flows. It's the moment where opportunity and willingness come together in an enzymatic way. And like a seed awakening in the dark, there's an impulse that calls toward light. Any path worth following will in the beginning reveal just enough to remind you of something that is both strange and familiar. It's like deja vu that you've not yet had. You could dismiss it as the fragment of a dream, except you can't. If you're lucky, the questions grow ever more interesting, and living into those wears away your blockages to understanding. This kind of calling, it will give you everything, even as it asks you to release everything that's in the way. I don't exactly remember the moment when I started to wonder, how does this acupuncture stuff work anyway? I do know it was somewhere in between learning sliding window internet data packaging protocols and noticing that the young 20-something-year-old consultants that were coming into our company, they were making two to three times as much as I was. I started to wonder if I might be nearing my expiration date in the IT world. I asked my acupuncturist at the time for something I could read that would help me to understand the curious and beneficial effects that I'd had from receiving acupuncture. She hands me a copy of The Web That Has No Weaver. It didn't really help, because while I could read the words in English, I had no idea how to make sense of what was being discussed. One thing was obvious. Well, no, make that two. First, the thinking structures for understanding acupuncture 
were a completely foreign world. That much I could gather. And second, acupuncture, as I already knew, was effective. So to understand it, I'd have to learn to think in a completely different way. 30 years later, I still chew on the question of how does acupuncture work? But now I have skills, tools, and experience to further investigate that question. The author of The Web was Ted Kapchuk, and I'm delighted to have him as the guest of this history series episode. Perhaps like me, you've been touched and influenced by his work. He certainly helped to blaze a trail that many of us have since followed. One thing before we start, you know, I'm keen on sound quality, but sometimes the Dow throws you a curveball. So some of the audio here is not quite up to our usual standard. We've done the best we can to clean it up. Still, I think you'll find this is a worthwhile conversation. Let's get into it after a few words from the people and companies that make it possible for you to enjoy Geological. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. 
If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app slash switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Ted Kapchuk, welcome to Geological. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Delighted to have you here. You've been in this profession since before there was a profession. That's right. You've been at this Chinese medicine thing. At least in the United States, yeah. At least in the United States. Well, yeah, exactly. So... This is a, a conversation, a podcast on the early days of the profession, like okay. who some of these people were that were there early on. I mean, I came into it in the 90s. There was an established profession. Right. You came into it. I don't even know when you came into it. When Ted, when was when was it that acupuncture like first came into your awareness that you're like, wait a minute, what is this thing? What was going on around you? Where were you? What were the events of the day? How did I get into this? I think this was it. 1970, 69, 1970. My classmate in college and a good friend from high school too, the same person, uh, was blown up in an explosion in New York City in March 7, 1970. Blown up in an explosion. Yeah. And he was making bombs. He was a member of Weatherman, and I was not. I was. I clearly made my distance, took my distance, and I received a call sometime soon after saying, "There's a grand jury in New York that's having hearings on this. You're going to be called up. Can you disappear?" As a courtesy to my friend, I needed to disappear. Uh, you know, a grand jury, you can't be per- prosecuted because anything you say, but you have to tell the truth. And they told me, Ted. They could, if you say something like your, my best friend liked to eat sour cream, that would help them find, figure out what's going on. So I said, okay. So I thought of where I could go where no one would expect me. And I knew the members of the San Francisco Red Guards, which were the equivalent of the Asian Black Panther Party. They had two safe houses. They had two houses that only Asians were allowed in. And I went to them and said, listen, I need to hide for a couple of weeks. Uh, can I live in your kitchen, some, in a closet? And they gave me an extra kitchen, and I said, you can take this room. And it was near, um, I, I actually was in two different houses. One was in Berkeley, one was uh, near um, 
what used to be called Filipino town in San, downtown San Francisco. And I was there and I what, didn't go out for at least a month or two at the door. And I I, I read Peking, what was called Peking Review then, or Beijing Review now. And every other week it had this banner say, Mao Zedong says Chinese medicine is a great treasure. And that's where I heard about Chinese medicine. I probably heard about it before. I knew about it before. But that tweaked my interest. And then I remember, you know, I, my, one of my college, I studied Buddhism a lot. I knew East Asian religions. And I also, uh, I, I have a left, I had a left-wing background then. And I said, you know what, maybe I should, when the, when the grand jury was over, I said, maybe, I said, what are you going to do now? And I said, you know what, I'm going to study this Chinese medicine stuff. Uh, so I asked friends where their grandparents went, the people in the Red Guard house, where, where did their grandparents go to doctors? And they told me names of doctors, and I figured out some of them were Chinese doctors, and I hung out for a while with them. And this, and is, in, it was, this is in San Francisco? At San Mateo, mainly. San Mateo, hotbed of Chinese medicine. Well, it was this old, old, really old Chinese doctor who was mostly drunk most of the time, but was really good. And um, I can tell you stories about that at some point. And so I worked with him and he was talking about Ted, this wind in, in the shoulders is, you know, dampness in the belly. And I go, what the, f what is he doing? <laughs> talking about? I, I helped, I, you know, I hung out with him and really enjoyed it. And then he, and then I said, I got to go to China and learn this stuff. So I went to China uh, on Translove Airline, Air, Airlines, which I mean, I'm sure you don't know. But it was like you pay twenty five dollars and you got a stolen ticket and you get uh, the night before and you get on the airplane and you disappear. So it only cost twenty five dollars. <laughs> so I got to, I went to Taiwan because I oh I forgot to tell you I asked members of the Black Panther Party to take a letter to the Central Committee of the People's Republic of China from me, deliver it saying I want to study Chinese medicine. Would you let me in? So you're going through the you're going through the Panthers to try to get into China. So I got eventually I got, got a letter back saying we can't do we don't let American passports in our medical schools. So I said I'm going to Taiwan. So I went I I by this time I had already collected lots of books and I said oh this there's a school here a school there. So I said and I had my Chinese teacher in San Mateo write a letter of introduction and I got on the plane got off the plane and studied and someone that was actually well-known, but a fraud. He was, you know, a, a, he said, how long, he said to me after I got there, and he didn't speak English, I didn't speak Chinese at that point, and he said, how long do you, how long do you want to stay here? I said, I want to study Chinese medicine. How long will you, is the program for? He said, well, we can do it in a week, two weeks, doesn't matter really, or you can stay longer. And I said, no, this doesn't sound good. So I, I watched it for about three weeks, and this guy's a shyster. He's a very famous shyster. Same. And I said, okay, <laughs> I got out of that, and then I found one one old Chinese doctor, and then another old Chinese doctor, one for the morning, one in the afternoon, that were really old, and they and they heard my story of how I was cheated by this notorious doctor, and they were they were they took me in. So I studied there for about a year, and then I said, Ted, I'm not making enough progress. I need to go to a regular school, right? I mean, these people they were really great doctors. I they did all kinds of things that were amazing. I love being with them. But I need someone to tell me what the fuck wind was. 
And so I said, I had to go to Chinese school. I wanted to be using the textbooks that were used in the People's Republic of China. I searched around. I wound up finding a new school was opening in Macau that was where the faculty was all from schools in the mainland that had went there in the 60s. And now they were dissatisfied with the Cultural Revolution. And they're mostly Indonesian Chinese. They graduated in Chinese medicine or Western medicine or both. And they went to Macau because they wanted to get away from the Chinese uh, Cultural Revolution. And they, they said that their parents couldn't visit them and they wanted to see their parents. And so they lived in Macau, the parents could come. If the parents went to the mainland, they would never be able to go back to Indonesia. So they started the school. It was pretty bad, but it was the only one I could find. And by this time, before uh, three months before I went to Macau, I said, okay, Ted, you got to learn Chinese. There's no way through this. You're not going to get anywhere. Did you learn Chinese in Taiwan? Did you study some Chinese? It, Mandarin is, yeah, you want to learn Mandarin in Taiwan. Yeah. And in Macau, people speak Cantonese. And, Cantonese. That doesn't help. Yeah, but my school was all people from the mainland who were patriotic Chinese who studied in Mandarin. So, and they were, and they actually, they're, they're actually Fujian people, but they spoke Mandarin in both Indonesia and China. So they opened up this school and it was, so I knew some Chinese. And then I, you know, went to classes every day and um, I didn't understand any of it. So I talked to the instructor. The tuition was $350 a year, but I told the principal that I was, a, my father was a member of the proletariat and fought in Stalingrad, which is true. And he said, okay, you're going to have half price. So it's $150 a year. I said, you know what? <laughs> Let me take the first year, learn Chinese, and then I'll repeat the first year. And I figured that was okay. I teach Chinese. I'll make enough money to survive. And so I, I go to class every day, and it was like I didn't understand anything was going on. And one of my classmates, who was very dear to me, at some point approached me and said, did you understand the classes? I said, not so much, but it's okay. And, and then she said, well, let me read my notes to you. And she, she would read the notes from one class and then say, you understand it better? I didn't want to insult her. So I said, yeah, I understand it better. She said, okay, I'm reading it again. So I would get these classes repeated two or three times late in the afternoon, in the evening. And eventually I was sitting there in class, probably the, even the third month. And I would say, oh, shit, I know exactly what they're going to say but I couldn't translate it into English. So I actually learned the language before I learned what the hell I was learning in the language, which really turned out to be very, very strategic. And I'll explain why as we go on, because the way I translated the web book was not really translating. It was actually explaining what I felt deep inside that made sense to me. And eventually I actually, you know, I'd look up, i be looking up words in dictionaries. I hired people to read read with me so I could learn to read, write, write. I could I learned it myself. So I went to the school. It was okay. It was not a school I would want to go to. I, I wrote letters again to the mainland and I wanted to go to Beijing. And I they just said no. So um I stayed, I did some more apprenticeship school and eventually I um can't learn more than I've already learned. No, I don't have any avenues to push forward. I didn't want to do any more apprenticeships. Um, I tried to do an apprenticeship with someone that 
saw 120 patients an hour. He was 80 years old. And he only used Shanghan formulas. He didn't write the formula. He had 60-year-old apprentices. And he would go, this formula, add this, change that. Next person. He said, what's wrong? Okay. This formula, it was like, you know, all these kind of very interesting things. And he said, I said, I want to study with you. And he goes, but you don't know Chinese. And I said, I'm talking to you in Chinese. He said, do you, do you, do you know, the, do you know the Shanghai Blue? And I said, yeah, I've studied it many times. He said, do you know it by heart? I said, no. And he said, well, you come back when you know it by heart. So I said, this is not, I'm not going to go in this game. So I, I went back to the States. I crossed Eurasia. I hitchhiked from Calcutta to Amsterdam, got back to the States. And I landed here in 19, oh, July 4th, 1976. 1976, the 200th birthday of the United States. Yeah, no, I, I actually was in Amsterdam and, and I was going to take a, a merchant marine boat home. And I said, I got to go home. I want to be there the 4th of July. I want to see, I hadn't seen my parents in six years. So I got to New York and I had no idea what to do. I had no idea what to do. I know I knew Chinese medicine. I knew there was not many people knew Chinese medicine. Later on, I found that they really didn't know Chinese medicine. This is great. So uh, let me just make sure I've got the flavor of this. You got a buddy. Is he part of the Weather Underground? Was he part of the Weather Underground? What was he part of? My, that was my, I was very active in Students of the Democratic Society in the 60s. Okay. All right. National officer. I was one of the founders of the Columbia SDS chapter. And a lot of my friends became weathermen. Yeah. I was, I was dragged close to it, but I realized they were dangerous. Yeah, well, yeah. When you get blown up with your own bomb, your buddy gets blown up. You're on the lam. You're hiding out. You're reading the Peking Review. Peking Review. Yeah. Peking Review. And Chairman Mao says, Chinese medicine's great. And you're saying, yep, that's for me. Well, I was looking for something. I, I thought of becoming a gunsmith, but I, I ruled that out. A gunsmith? What's a nice Jewish boy doing becoming a gunsmith? Yeah, but uh, I said, this is something that's interesting. I also, my idea was, I'm not going to learn anything that makes me work for the man. I, I understand. Right. I am and I'm not going to give in to getting a regular job or a regular anything. And this was really, I thought, you know, maybe I actually, I grew up in a home that was really into alternate medicine and um, American alternate medicine, vegetarianism, that kind of stuff. I said, well, let me, I think this might work. And I thought, you know, Mao liked it. The Buddhists liked it. I said, I'll try it out. I'm going to do it. Not yeah. bad. You want to go to the mainland, but you can't get in, even though you have the Black Panthers shilling for you to try to get you in. You can't get in. Off to Taiwan you go. And you learn some stuff in Taiwan. You meet some interesting people. Some doctors are good. I learned a lot of great things. Yeah, no, it was, I didn't appreciate it then, but after going to school, I realized that my teachers were really good. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it funny? Sometimes you look back and you go, God, I really screwed that up. I, I had a master in front of me and I didn't know it. That's what, yeah. My first teacher in San Mateo, who was drunk most of the time, yeah. To, uh, when I finished school in Asia and was coming back, I said, I'm going to go back and study with him because he was the, he was really the best teacher, the best practitioner I ever met. What made him so good? Why was he so good? Yeah. Want, what I mean, what made him so good? And someone would call and say, I want to have an appointment with Dr. Hong. And I would say, uh, and I'd say, Dr. Hong, someone wants an appointment. And he said, let me talk. I said, okay. And he'd go, Okay, what's I listen? Is it asthma? Okay, um, come at 
three o'clock in the afternoon. He got he was anything after four o'clock was too dangerous. He might be drunk. And so next he hangs up and he goes, Ted, buy this formula in Chinatown tomorrow morning for this person. I said, Dr. Han, you don't even you don't even know you have to take his pulse and stuff. And he said, I can tell. And it was like it was like he did that all the time. I'll tell you this real quick story. Another story. He he also when he talked to people, he'd say they got wind where they got dampness. And I said, how do you know, Dr. Hong? You just talked to him on the phone. And he said, they asked about how to park in a way that told me they were damp. Or they, <laughs> they would, they would and, and he said, and I go, what the fuck is he talking about? So he had a real deep abilities. <laughs> I can tell you much more story. Because he actually wound up treating John Lennon and Yoko Ono for... They asked how to, the way they asked how to park yeah. Okay. So I, I finished my school. I, I learned a lot of good things in, in Taiwan. Yeah. And then and then you're off to Macau. You do Macau. Lucky for you. Let me tell you about some of my, my teachers in, in Taiwan. They were really good. Two of them. I had two teachers. One was a woman, really old, and not many old women practicing, who could recite all the poems. that She knew all the poems about Chinese herbs and acupuncture that people used to learn when they were apprentices. Like you're five years old. You yeah. know everything about Chinese medicine, but you don't know what you're talking about, right? Right. But and she knows she the nursery familiar. rhymes. Hmm? Yeah, nur- there were nurse- she knows the nursery kind of nursery rhymes, rhymes yeah. herbs and acupuncture yeah. formulas. And the other guy was the other really great man, really sweet man. He uh, one day his son came over to me and said, "You know, do you want to see Doctor Chen do some of his crazier stuff?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And he said, "Well, he's doing a patient tonight. Come." So I go over there, and Doctor Chen would sit there go into a trance. First, he put out a whole bunch of, a lot of sand in a big, in a flat basket. And he would go into trance and write a formula out in trance. He got communicated from some spirit, apparently. And I, I just, I mean, I saw things that were really hard to believe. They certainly were not taught in any Chinese. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Uh, No, you would not learn that kind of stuff in school. So, Ted, nice Jewish radical boy ends up in Taiwan. How do you meet these doctors? How does that happen? Well, then, I was desperate. You know, I'm, uh, my life depended on learning Chinese medicine. I was going to do, and I cut off my long hair to go to Taiwan. 
I, that was a big deal. I just asked around. It was, I just asked, asked. I can't believe how many people I talked to. And, and the people that took me on understood that I was going to sweat and I was going to do this and make, and they would be able to contribute to spreading Chinese medicine. It was real self. It was evident to people that would pay attention to me. So you threw yourself in front of it. But they just took me into their homes. Yeah. And had lunch with one family, one home and dinner at the other home. That's quite an introduction. Right in my school, because the school is actually where I learned Chinese medicine. Okay, so the school is where you learn Chinese medicine. What would you say you learned from the Taiwanese doctors? I learned, oh, that's really tricky. I learned that what couldn't be taught in school. I didn't know that at the time. I thought these people were crazy sometimes. They were, I, it was, they were doing things that I knew were different. They were very different. They had their own styles. They, they inherited family traditions. They were taught, they've been practicing medicine, pulling out needles from the age of five years old, that kind of stuff. What I learned in Macau was I learned the syllabus of the People's Republic of China. I learned Bianjiang Lunjie, right? Just the eight principles. And I learned, I went, I memorized the materia medica. I memorized the the formularies. I memorized all the acupuncture points that I did internal medicine. I did um, all kinds of formal learning. I learned what is now called TCM. But in Taiwan, I picked up a lot of what might be not TCM, but what existed before we needed to standardize Chinese medicine in order to make it function in a modern society with exams uh, for licensure, exam for students. And we needed to, how to say, standardize what was taught in order to make it function in modern society. So you got some of the pre... And then, so I finished Macau, I realized I wanted to go back to the old timers and study more of them. Yeah, understandable. So what happened? Did, did you get that chance? No, Dr. Hung, um, whiskey and his IV in a hospital committed suicide. He was really, he was tormented. He had, uh, I might tell you his stories about his, he was amazing. He was um, a doctor on the ships that went between Shanghai and Liverpool during the 30s because the laborers on those ships wanted Chinese medicine or that was all they could afford. I don't know. But I don't think I should go there right now because otherwise we'd be here all day. Oh, wait. I want to hear the story. It it sounds like a great it sounds like a great story. Yes, yeah, so that I, I'm going to do something about that, Dr. Hum. My wife never believed me until the New York Times, 20 years after he died, had an article on how he treated Yoko Ono and John Lennon. And they said, Ted, that's your doctor. Yeah, that's my doctor. Anyways, so uh, he specialized I, in addiction because that's what he treated on the boats. Yeah, well, it, it's what he ended up with. I mean, he knew a lot about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's on this boat. Hang on. I'm, I'm just curious because you're saying 1930s, Liverpool to Shanghai. Okay, this is a time a lot of Jews are escaping to Shanghai, isn't it? Yeah, no, they're right. But they're, that's small compared to the number of people that you, and it was, the Jews were on two streets. It had nothing to do with Jewish stuff. Okay. All right. I just was wondering if there was a, a connection there. I probably had no idea what Jews were too. So maybe he didn't, I didn't notice. <laughs> okay. Dr. Han sounds like he was an interesting character. Oh, he's really interesting. Yeah, fun. He was my inspiration for a lot of a lot of things that happened after I came back to the States. 
I wanted to figure out what he did. And I finally, and I finally could. And how did you go about doing that? I studied Chinese medicine, you know, TCM. I took lots and lots of patients and there was nobody else doing Chinese medicine except a Korean guy in Cambridge and downtown Chinatown. And I, I watched my patients. I listened to my patients. I felt my patients. And eventually I learned that you could tell, you could diagnose by just by a little bit of what you get from them. You don't need to do the pulse of tongue. You need to do the pulse and tongue, tongue to train yourself to do what Dr. Hong did. And you have to do that for years in order to pull that off. And it really comes from, it, it's the, you call it in, in secular terms, uh, it develops your, your being Chinese medicine doctor is not something you learn from books or in school. It That lets you begin to learn Chinese medicine. And that's a great gift. It, serving, helping other people, paying attention to them in this unique way that's not what modern consciousness is about. Um, you actually refine your abilities to pay attention. And eventually you can actually just know things when the person walks in the door. And then of course you have to check yourself because you have to, you're always going to be wrong. And the reason that's important, let me just see the word. It's not, you know, and you shouldn't flout that at skill because you can always be wrong. But I would say Dr. Hong would, you know, just watch the way people asked about parking and he would say, I think I know, you know this is what I, is it's asthma and this, with that way he talked, get that formula. And I, it took me years to do it and it happened by itself from paying attention. And what happens is we, as practitioners, we grow. We actually have this gift that we're going to get more skilled, more wise, more clarity as we get older. That's why people go to that doctor I mentioned before uh, for half a minute to be with him, right? Because he's been through the mill. He feels, he knows, and he could be wrong. I have, you know, I don't believe in masters, uh, but I believe in, in skilled uh, intuition. Okay. This medicine actually changes us as much as it helps patients. That's what I'm saying. I believe you. I know. I think you know what I'm saying. I, I do know what you're saying. There are, there are things that change about us, and it's a, it's a little hard to describe, but yeah, sometimes someone just walks in the clinic, they walk in, and noticing how they walk in and how they sit down, I'm already halfway to a diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, and you have to be careful because you might be wrong. You always have to check yourself. But that, it, that's what Dr. Hong inspired me to do. Yeah. I don't know if I would have been able to learn it from him. I think I had to learn it on my own. Because it's everyone has their own unique sensitivities, right? This is one of the really curious things to me about our medicine. We have wonderful and influential teachers. And they help spark something in us. But then it's our experience and our patience who actually, and our attention, Let's not forget our attention. It's our attention to our experience. Our teachers mainly prevent us from making big mistakes. And that's important. You know, you, you, okay, you know ballpark what you're doing. Now sort of figure it out. But, but eventually you can, you can know the ballpark very, very quickly and actually more precisely. Yes. So you're back in the States after hitchhiking from India. 
Oh, man, what a time you had. You're practicing Chinese medicine in the United States in like 19... Illegally. Yeah. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. Illegally. In 1976, there was no licensure. Uh, the, the Koreans hated me. There's a Korean clinic a, a mile away because I didn't have, I, I was earning a living teaching. And so I didn't care about making money. And they would, I would undercut them. And they, they actually called the police on me in different times. Uh, but I always managed to survive them. How did you survive? How did you get by in a time when it was illegal and yet you're doing the work? How did you make that work? I think it wasn't hard. Please don't really check on you. And, and it monetarily, I was actually earning, a, I never earned a living from taking patients because they were my teachers and I was able to teach and make money. So when I came back to the United States, the reason I went to Cambridge and Boston was that the New England School had just opened up. New England School of Acupuncture was the first acupuncture school in the States, I think. Yeah, I think it was. Maybe Rosenberg School in LA was. And so I went over there and said, I want to teach. Do you want me to teach? I need a job teaching. Maybe because I, I feel competent. And they said, how much do you want? And I forgot what I said, but they said, we'll pay you four times that amount. I was really still in China. But the but then the head teacher, Dr. So, who's a great, great healer, said, I don't want him to teach here because I teach everything. You know, it's a typical um, master stuff and he didn't want anyone mess, messing with his mastery. And uh, so I said, I'll teach herbs. And then when I started teaching herbs, I realized that no one knew the difference between chi and blood. And I said, you know what? I have to teach a theoretical course here. Mm. And then, but I, I enjoyed teaching. I learned so much from the students. Um, I learned how to articulate things. People had great questions. People had great insights. So that's actually how I survived. I'm just pausing for a moment because I'm already exhausted just thinking about what's brought you up to this point in your life. How old? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. When, when you came back to the United States and started teaching at the New England School, how old were you? I don't remember. It had to be... Roughly. I came back when I was 28. So I must have been 28 or 9. Mm-hmm. Probably all the kids that you'd grown up with, they, you know, they had jobs, they had families, they... Uh... Most of my kids were really misfits. I, you know, I grew up, I was in radical circles, so they never really grew up. But no, no, I, I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel, and New England's School of Acupuncture was still a counterculture institution. I'm sure it meaning, was. Yeah, in the early days of, of acupuncture, Chinese medicine, East Asian medicine, it was counterculture. So what do you mean by counterculture? I mean, that could mean a bunch of different things. It operated outside the conventional norms in terms of diet, thinking, religion, behaviors. And it was very influenced by New Age stuff. And I that was what I was like in California before I left. So it was very comfortable to be there. And everyone was taking this great risk. People were coming from all over the country to study Chinese medicine. They didn't have a chance of opening up a clinic legally. But people came. You know, it has always been an unlicensed medical practice in the States. Ted, this is why I'm so interested in guys like you that were there in the very beginning. Because, for God's sake, the stuff is interesting, but how the hell do you make a living? 
I mean, it, it seems like everybody came in on a wing and a prayer or just, here's something I'm interested in. I don't know how it's going to work. I trust I'll figure it out. I, I think that people, I actually think a lot of the early pioneers earned a living well. They were, you know, they were, they probably lived like hippies for a few years, but then once the licensure came in, they were the leading practitioners and they had built up a practice. They finally got legitimate. I think people were able to earn a living. And also when you're doing your passion, you don't care about earning a living. I hear you. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. And it's nice when your passions and earning a living overlap, which is possible now. I suspect it's possible at any point in time. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just the methods that you get there by will be different. Mm -hmm. But I've, I've talked to a number of folks now who practiced before there was licensure. They didn't worry about advertising or being found in the yellow pages because they had word of mouth practices from the get go. They had cash based. Yeah, there's, there's a demand, you know, the demand and, and the supply are often in, in sync. So it, there was a lot. Of, if I wanted to work full time all the time, I would have been able to do that. But I actually spent about half my time studying Chinese texts when I get back because I realized that I needed to understand Chinese medicine better than my what I had learned in China. I needed to really grapple with older texts. I needed to. Also because I was teaching, so I always wanted to find out new material for teaching. And then I would learn new things. Well, you know, that's the thing about learning a little bit of something. You notice how much you don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you remember what kind of older texts you were interested in at that time? Oh, yeah, I read all the old texts. and I, mean, I spent a lot of time. The most important text I read, I would not have been able to read without my friend uh, Steve Clara, who's then a, a monk named Hong Jing Fasher, venerable. And um, he came over and he studied acupuncture while he was in a monastery in Taiwan. Nobody was in, in Taiwan, in a monastery. And he got licensed by his grandfather, but he always was nervous about his skills. And um, I spent a lot of time in his monastery when he was in Hong Kong. And one day he came over and said, Ted, you have to read this. And he was very, he got real nervous. I said, sure. And he said, Ted, have you read Sun Tzu Miao? I said, no. I said, Ted, you have to read this. Let me show you. And he pulled out stuff and he said, Ted, what is this saying? And I said, Jing, it's talking about ghosts. He said, what does he mean by ghosts? I said, I think he means ghosts. I don't know. He's studying sections on red eyes, ghosts, and what yellow eyes. I mean, something he's, someone's seeing something. And the word is ghosts, actually, or spirits. And the, and so I, I when I read Sun Tzu I realized I had really not learned the truth about Chinese medicine when I was in school. Meaning they, they talk about him, you know, he's one of the six most famous doctors in Chinese medicine, Tang Dynasty. He dies about 700 common era. And um, so it's all, it's, he's full of, it's amazing stuff. Um, he would have herbs for when you're stuck in different stages of samadhi, right? It was like, take these herbs. I'm going, oh, I never heard that. He, had, he would talk about transforming your consciousness. He would routinely say, oh, uh, I got this formula from a celestial master. I mean, he was in another world. He also had a whole chapter in Ayurvedic medicine and uh, a section on medicines from Hippocratic doctors. And it, and it was like 
his his mind was bigger than any mind that I'd seen. It wasn't it wasn't narrow, and I realized that the things like Huan and Po were not just cute things, but actually real things for Chinese medicine at some point in history. So that really changed me a lot. And it's, I spent a year reading it since me out at least a year with reading it with Jane, this like teacher and reading Tang Dynasty text. His he could only read Chinese texts from the Tang Dynasty. He was really crazy. I learned. I you know. I studied all the texts, and I learned to appreciate. I didn't listen. I could have studied for. I could have studied three lifetimes and not known, not gotten enough. But I learned enough to feel comfortable that it was that Chinese medicine was much more complex than I learned in school. But I want to say something real important: the simp, the standardization that we we'll call TCM made it possible for Chinese Chinese medicine to survive into the 21st century. Without that standardization, there'd be no Chinese medicine in China. The medicines of Korea, Japan, and Vietnam would be greatly diminished. They got a big boost from state sanction in China, and there would be no Western profession. And I think one can reclaim what people did in earlier texts by paying attention to patients. I don't know about the ghost stuff especially but I learned that uh, and I learned it from my patients I had a patient come in and say every time I go I see children I cry and I say why well, because I had an abortion I'm really terrible and I said you know can you help me and I go shit I'm gonna just do what I you know I felt her pulse because and I and tongue I said okay this looks like this to me and I treated her and uh and I learned that you can treat that stuff right I, I learned that you could do things that are not what was taught to me in China. I learned not to be afraid of anything in, in when I came to Chinese medicine. I knew I could help somewhere, somehow. I also learned that when I worked in the hospital, my first and second hospital I worked in, I worked in palliative care during the uh, HIV pandemic and epidemic. And everyone on that 70% mortality rate on the floor, it was a segregated unit. And and the chief of medicine said, why don't you take your team up there? And I said, I actually actually asked him first. I learned so much about things I'd never heard about. And then later on, we find in Chinese medical texts. Patients teach us things that we don't need to learn. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did.
if we're open to it. Mm-hmm. If you're open, of course. So you bring something up here, and I find this interesting because it's a big, apparently a contradiction, which is, you know, par for the course with Chinese medicine. So, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. On one hand, standardization allowed Chinese medicine to survive into the modern moment. At the same time, the kind of Chinese medicine that Dr. Han did, that Sun Sun Miao did, that some of these teachers you had in China, I'm sorry, Taiwan had, that's not standardized medicine. You can't, you can't get to where they got. And so I, I get it. On one hand, we need the standardization to bring it into the modern moment. But now we've lost what was left behind. How do you bring that back in? How do you rediscover that without somebody to, to sit there and show you? I feel I might be wrong. It's a really good question, Michael. I once read a terrible, terrible book of Chinese medicine, uh, a Chinese something, and the, and the author says to the student, you think the saber-toothed tiger is dead, don't you? And the student says, yeah, they were in L.A. Say, yeah, of course so. He said, no, they're not. Look at those cars. They have the same energetic as a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> and that it was the only good part of the book. What I would say that, what I said to give you that story, is that everything we need to learn, if we're open, our patients teach us. If we actually, you know, we know how to do the pulse a bit. We know how to do tongue diagnosis a lot. We know how to ask questions a lot. And then there are all the questions that our patients force us to go down, that if we pay attention, we're taught what the idiosyncratic forms of Chinese medicine have to offer. That's my opinion. And that's what's, that's what's so exciting about Chinese medicine. I don't practice very much because I do other things. It makes you, every patient has the potential of really teaching us something, especially when they just, when they say things that you don't expect, they, you don't know what they're talking about. Uh, why are they saying this? I don't know what the hell's going on here. That's, that's, you got the opportunity. That's it. That's the opportunity right there. When you don't know what's going on. That, and that will teach us what the idiosyncratic was, because the idiosyncratic approach comes out of people's personal experiences, totally. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the best answer I can. But I actually think that TCM is a, a brilliant move. How do you know your teacher is in an apprentice? How do you know your teacher is good? You don't really know. You just you assume you see me, he, he, she or he gets patients better. But the schools give you a basis for which to start. And then you have the rest of your lifetime to develop that, not necessarily consciously, but maybe consciously. And the reason I feel like I can talk about this because I've read, I, I've been liberated by reading some of the early texts. And I can say when the, there's the Divine Husbandman's classic of Maturi Medica, talks about ginseng. It never uses one word that says um, increased strength or tone of, I, I, I may have the word tone of husband, right? Not all the words are about quiet and peacefulness. Mm. And it says it treats the wood in the pole, it strengthens the will. When I read that, I, when I read it in China, I said, that's, you know, that's a spleen reading, that's what it says in the book. But when I read it later, I realized because that those were not 
unimportant. Those were really important things, the will, uh, the Hun and the Po. And you don't need to know the name Hun and Po, but whenever you treat someone deeply, you're going to affect their Hun, Po, and their will. It happens, it happens even despite it, we don't know. That's what's so amazing. And there's something called beginner's luck where you don't really know what you're doing and you still help. I'm not critical of teasing. I think it's really, really important. And I think that it lets all of us start with a, I feel like it really is my foundation. So, and I have to say this, I really feel that the most important thing is I don't understand Japanese and Korean medicine. That tells me when I hear Kiko Matsumoto teach, I don't understand the words he says. And that tells me that there's a way of going and being in East Asian medicine that I don't know. And that means I still have things to learn. And the, 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 the difference, the, the, the fact that all these different systems are around is really a sign to me there's an infinite amount of learning that can be done here. It's one of the attractions of it for sure. Infinite learning. And I would suggest that these moments in clinic, like you were talking about, where something's happening with a patient and we don't really know what's going on, they have the potential to be pivotal moments. If we can grasp them, I know for myself, one of the biggest impediments to that is this ego part of me that thinks I'm supposed to know what's going on. I'm the doctor. I'm supposed to know what's going on and I'm supposed to do something that's helpful. And of course I want to be helpful, but there are times and there are not just a few of them, Ted, where I'm sitting in clinic and the most helpful I can be is I don't understand what's going on here. Pay more attention. That's as close as I can get right. and follow that and then see what happens. Yeah, that's all you can do. I want to say something too. Classical texts, old texts are more confusing than helpful because you have to live it because they all contradict one another. You, you, it is a, uh, the Neijing mix is not logical. It says things in the opposite ways. It, uh, the Shanghai Nguyen is logical, but it's very narrow. And most commentaries try to make the sen- the earlier texts make sense. Reading classical texts is also dealing with the unknown. It's like, what possibly could this mean? And the only real answer, I don't know. I'm not sure what to say. But I have faith that if we stick in there, is we're always able to help patients. You know, we don't relieve suffering. We uh, relieve unnecessary suffering. Some suffering we can't deal with. Because the creator of the world made it with suffering. Ted, that's a, um, wow, that, I know that for myself, and I think a lot of us, we get into this work because, yes, we would like to reduce or relieve suffering. In hearing you say, relieving suffering, yeah, nope, can't do that, but you can relieve unnecessary suffering. That changes things. When I hear you say that, that changes things. Because now I'm not on the hook to save the whole fucking world. But I can maybe make it a little better in the space where I'm at. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. Well, my pleasure. I really, I, I like what you said about it. It really is helpful. It's powerful. 
Very powerful. I'd like to switch. Well, partly I want to switch and talk a little bit about the work you're doing today, but there's this other part of me that thinks, let's save that for another conversation. What I would like to ask you is, is a way of starting to wind this thing down is given your experience and your really incredible path into the medicine, most people don't follow it the way that you followed it. For people who are coming into maybe their students or their new practitioners at this moment in time, I'm wondering what they might need to know that would help them to get their feet under them as practitioners Or is there even anything you could say? Because look, the time that you came along and the time they're coming along, those are two different worlds. Okay. You're asking me to address new people coming into the profession. Yes. Right? What would I say to new people coming into the profession? I think that first of all, every bit of sweat you put in, you get much more out of it than down the road. Um, You learn everything. You pay attention. You look for things that make sense. You look for things that don't make sense. You have, when you're in school, you just learn from every one of your teachers. You learn from every one of the books you read. You, and, you know, being in clinic, you pay attention. You, you're in a place where you're, you're doing full-time learning. What an incredible gift, right? Even though it could be strenuous and arduous for many people. I think all the schools that are accredited in the States are give you the foundation. There's really a lot of great material translated into English right now. So it's like not when I started, it was like, it was not, there was nothing, almost nothing. And I think that it's an opportunity. It's like, this is not, uh, this is not for learning, making money or uh, having a career only. It's good if it takes care of us that way. Joining this profession, this lineage for, for 2000 years is an opportunity to grow for the rest of one's life. And you have to have patience. Learn from as many places as you can. Don't be afraid of the contradictions. Things that don't make sense are going to be really helpful when you get older, as you go through, because your patients don't sometimes don't make sense. That's what I'd say. And there are all these books out there. I mean, it's um, there's so many things being translated. It's very hard to read old books because they don't make sense. The, the modern books make sense. When you when things don't make sense clinically, you're actually dealing with something that old books deal with, because none of those books make sense either. I got to tell you, this is like, what are they talking about? And then you learn how to live in that world. Ted, it sounds a little bit to me like your experience in Macau, where you're learning medicine and you're learning Chinese at the same time. You're repeating things. And I get where you're coming from, because when I was learning Chinese, I I had to go back a couple of classes every time there was a new quarter and repeat because I was so damn slow. took a lot of time. But what what I heard you say about your time in Macau is you had a moment, because you engaged it, you had a moment where the language started to make sense and the medicine made sense, and it just made sense. It made sense in Chinese. You couldn't really say it in English, but you could grok it in Chinese. Mm. And I think learning medicine is a lot like that. There, there comes a point. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Can I say something? Because you use the word grok. I don't know if many of our younger uh, people who listen know the word grok, but it's about grokking. And I wanted to say that 
one of the reasons that the web book has done so well through since it's been published is that I didn't try to translate word for word ever. And what I really tried to do is say, Ted, what when you read this, what do you think, feel, and do when you're in China? So that, for instance, the word zheng, Z-H-E-N-G, which means mm. usually the Chinese translate as syndrome or sometimes symptom. I translated as pattern mm-hmm. because I was I remember because they would they were trying to show this that they were sort of bowing their head down to, you know, situating that character into a Western medical idea, which is that didn't have a real cause. It was just uh, symptoms, syndrome. And what I saw when I was there is this is this was the hardcore. This is this is this is not a symptom or syndrome. This is something real. And I picked the word pattern, right? I just want to say that that's all that came out of not knowing, not out of knowing. The pattern is real if you know how to see the pattern. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Don't you think it's amazing that you can see these things? I have to tell you, I, when I was in China, it was like amazing. One day, one day, I was with my god. I lived with my godmother, who's old Chinese lady, who's blessed memory, and she would say, "Ted, you're so yin." You have to eat, you can't eat those fruits. You have to eat this, you know, cooked stuff and stuff. And I'd go, how does she know that? She's an old lady. She doesn't know it. And she would say, and she would go, she knew a little about herbs too. And and then I, one day I went to school and I said, oh, I see it. And it was like, I saw dampness the way I see my blue shirt. I was like, oh yeah, that's, I, and that's a gift that's beyond belief, right? To be able to have a normal secular consciousness and then also you can see these things right pretty amazing stuff well mr dr ted kapchik pioneer thank you so much for your time today this is this has been delightful max thanks for being with me and inviting me i really appreciated being able to think out loud with you i appreciate it too until next time talk to you soon I've heard some pretty interesting ways that people found their way into acupuncture. There was Russell Brown in episode 77. He overheard some women talking in a restaurant, and one of them said, I just enrolled in acupuncture school, and he decided, yeah, I'm going to do that too, and he did it the next day. Eric Karshmer, over in episode 333, he went to China to study the anthropology of Chinese medicine and ended up becoming a practitioner of the art. Brenda Hood from episodes 116, 214, and an extra episode on tidal flows, she started off in psychology, but found that often enough, it locked people further into the difficulties that they had. Tai Chi is what got her attention. And then, in for a penny, in for a pound, off to China to learn medicine. But having your friend get blown up by a bomb that he was making? I gotta tell you, that takes a cake. One thing for sure, I suspect we've all had some kind of inciting incident that took us down the path that's become our life's work. And have you noticed that while perhaps you were aiming at a way to make a decent living, what probably got you started was something that promised nothing other than 
a worthwhile inquiry. All voyages of discovery? I suspect this is how they start. Origin stories. They are potent in how they draw us forward. I'd be curious to know about yours. Visit the website and click on the Engage button to tell me about it. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.